Amen. Thank you, Ira, for that. If you're not familiar with that old hymn, Trust and Obey, there's no way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I hope those words were running through your mind as Ira played, because that has everything to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, trust, faith, and obedience. So it's good to see you, Gateway family, this morning. Turn to Ephesians 1 if you're not there as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to us as well. As you're finding Ephesians 1, I want to ask you a question. When you look around at how followers of Christ relate to one another, what do you see? You look at how followers of Christ relate to one another in your life group, at Gateway, and Montgomery, across America, what do you typically see? Do you see in the way followers of Christ relate a real faith that's led to oneness, that's led to unity, that's led to a breaking down of prejudices and barriers to where people have come together as brother and sister in Christ and actually treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ whom they love? Do you see that? Or when you look at how Christians typically relate, do you instead, do you see division? over race, ethnicity, division over backgrounds? Do you see broken relationships fighting, division over theological emphases, worship styles, preferences and how we do things with our kids, whatever? What do you see when you look at how Christians relate? Unity or division? Does it make it more personal when you look into your heart and I look into my heart? What do we see? Does my daily life show unconditional love for brothers and sisters in Christ? Or does my daily life show more interest in myself and the vision that we create? Friends, over the last three weeks, we've seen a lot about our identity. We spent the last three weeks looking at the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians and seeing what our identity in Christ really is. We've seen that what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done to give us an identity. And ultimately, if you tie everything from the last three weeks together, the identity is that we belong to God. That before time even began, he had chose us, and he had adopted us, and he has made us his sons and daughters. And you and I, in Christ, have an identity that we can never choose. And that's an identity of belonging to our Creator, being loved by him, being in relationship with him, and having a purpose in our life. Friends, if we understand that identity, it will change us. Because real faith, a real grasp of who we are in Christ, will transform our lives. And so as we pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 this morning, I want you to look for two things in these two short verses we're going to look at this morning. That is, how do we know that the Ephesians really believed? How do we know that they really had faith? And then second of all, what difference did it make? So what's the evidence, what's the fruit, if you will, that they had genuine faith, and how did it change them? Because that's really one and the same thing. So we're picking up this morning with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? If you're a visitor, we do this because I want us to treasure that God has revealed himself to us. And it's a reminder to us of the the blessing we have of God's revelation, God's word to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. The words will also be on the screen. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray that in these short two verses this morning that you would let them come alive in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters. Father, there's so much truth packed in these short few words in these two verses. God, I pray it would be life-altering for us, transforming for us, or that you would have your way, Lord, as us, your adopted children, that, God, you would use your word this morning to shape us and mold us and transform us into more of who you want us to be. We ask that for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I must confess at the offset, I was not planning on just doing two verses this morning. You know I go a little bit slow through books of the Bible. I wasn't planning on quite going this slow with these two verses on this. I planned for us to tackle these verses as well as Paul's prayer that followed them. 
But as the more I studied, the more I prayed this week, the more the Spirit of God convicted me and arrested my attention. There was truth in these two verses that we need, that if we combine them with the rest of the passage, we would lose in the midst of all this. So with a little bit of trepidation, we're doing just two verses this morning, verses 15 and 16. But there's two truths I want to see from this. Normally I give you one truth I want to hang the whole message around so you have a takeaway you can take home from it. But there's so much in these two verses, I couldn't condense this down to just one short sentence like I normally do. So these short two verses have two truths I want to see this morning, and they'll be up on the screen for you. What I want to see this morning is, first of all, that real faith in Jesus results in love for all believers. That real faith in Jesus results in love for all believers. But coupled with that is such faith should be celebrated and encouraged. So what I want to see this morning is, first of all, an inward focus in that first part. Do I really believe? Because if I really believe in Jesus, it's going to make a difference. If I really believe in who Jesus said he is, it's going to shape how I treat you. It's going to shape how you treat one another, how you treat me. We're all going to be changed in how we interact if we really believe in Jesus. So real faith in Jesus inwardly is going to result in the way we love one another. But then outwardly, what do we do? If we see this type of genuine faith in one another, how do we respond? I want you to see that we have a mission, a task as far as God to celebrate and encourage it when we see God's grace in each other's life. So real faith in Jesus results in love for all believers, and such faith should be celebrated and encouraged. Let's start with the first idea, that faith in Jesus results in love for all believers. Go back to verse 15 here to see what Paul is saying to the people at Ephesus and to us as well. Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all, the saints. So he begins here, Paul commends the people in Ephesus for their faith. Now, what is real faith? Well, we've been talking about this for a long time, haven't we, as we work through the Gospel of John. What is faith? Faith is not, I'm going to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, join the church so I don't go to hell. That's not faith. Faith is much more than that. Faith is believing in who God is, believing who Jesus is, and receiving his transforming work in our life. Real faith, we saw over and over in the Gospel of John, changes us. And that's what we've seen already in the beginning of Ephesians, these first 14 verses, that real faith, real belief is receiving the status of being adopted, being chosen by God, of being forgiven, being sealed. And for those who receive that, he changes us. Hence the terms we already saw in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, that we're saints, we're faithful, we're hoping in him, we're part of his plan. He's going to use us to unify all things, that this is all what's going on, that we're different because we're in Christ and he is using us. Friends, why does genuine faith change us? What makes a difference here? Well, go back to verse 15. Genuine faith is certainly going to change us, friends, because genuine faith is not faith in just anything. It's not a nebulous concept. Faith has an object. If you have faith in something, you have faith in an object. You have a faith in a thing or a person. Here, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. If we have specific faith in the Lord Jesus, who is God himself, who took on human flesh, who came as Emmanuel, God with us, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, fulfilled the law we could not fulfill, but went to the cross as our sacrifice, took the wrath that we deserve, and gave us then his righteousness. If we believe that, if we have faith in Jesus doing that and who he is, it will change us. I want you to notice something important about this faith. Notice how Paul describes our faith in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is not faith to get us out of hell. It's not faith just to rescue us from our sin, though that's part of it. Notice the term he uses in this in verse 15 here. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Notice the word Lord there. It's an easy word for us to miss because we use it so much. We talk about Jesus as Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word we're so familiar, I think we lose the significance of that word. It's an intentional word that Paul uses here. What does the word Lord mean? Lord has a meaning in the Greek language beyond just religiously. 
The word Lord means literally someone who's a master, someone who has authority, <coughs> excuse me, someone who is a property owner. So think back to how that, that word got used in European history. Think of the time of feudalism. Who was the Lord? was the master over an area. It was the one who had authority over an area. It's the one who was the property owner over an area. And so the people who were under the Lord didn't say, well, I'm going to farm how I want to farm today. No, they farmed as the Lord told them that they would farm because the Lord was the boss, the master, the property owner, and they were under him. And so, friends, when we talk about Jesus as our Lord, that's not just a formality. That's not just a nice word. That's not just a title that we throw around. It's recognizing Jesus to be our master, our boss, the one that we order our life according to, that we submit our life to. So when you hear verse 15, hear it like this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Jesus as your master, your boss, your Lord, the one who is the rightful owner of all things, and the one you're submitting your life to. That's what real faith involved. In fact, that's not, that shouldn't be anything new or surprising to us. We saw it way back in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, Verse 15 that we looked at many months ago, Jesus simply said, If you love me, you will keep, you will obey my commandments. That if we really follow Jesus, if we really love Jesus, not that we're going to do this perfectly, but there's going to be a change in our heart where we want to submit to him as our master, as our boss, and as our Lord. That means when Jesus speaks, if we're his followers, it's not like, yeah, that's optional, I'll go do what I want to do. If we're submitting to Christ and trusting in him in faith, we will seek by God's grace to obey him in all that he says. And friends, one area that he speaks very clearly of how we're to obey him involves how we treat one another as brother and sister in Christ. If we go back one chapter in John to John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, here's an area to where the lordship of Christ, him as our master, our boss, has authority over us. He said this to his followers, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. There's a high standard there. We're to love each other the way that Christ has loved us. You also are to love one another. Then verse 35, by this, by this love, this Christ-like love, we're to share as brother and sister Christ, by this type of love, all the people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, if we have real faith, we have real faith in Jesus. And that means we have real faith in him as our Lord, our master, our boss, the one who has authority, the one who has the right to speak to us and says, you're to treat one another the way that I treat you. You. So go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. You notice how he connects these two together. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Notice the word and there, it goes together. If we have real faith, we're going to have real love. And friends, can I suggest that if we think we have faith in Christ, and it doesn't at all impact how we treat one another, we're really deceiving ourselves if we think we have genuine faith. There is no genuine faith without the Lordship of Christ in our life. Friends, I know that can stretch us and can make us a bit uncomfortable and squirmish a little bit because in our culture, we've kind of relegated faith to a point-in-time decision. Oh, sure, when I was 7 years old, I prayed this prayer. When I was 12 years old, I got baptized. When I was 18 years old at youth camp, I went through the motions. We can relegate faith to a point-in-time decision. But friends, genuine faith is Christ becomes my master, my boss, my Lord, and it's going to transform and revolutionize my life, including how I treat one another. Because it stretches us, I want you to see us in one other place in Scripture to realize this is not just one isolated text, though that carries the authoritative weight of the Word of God. This is throughout all of Scripture. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. I want you to see a short passage here, because I think this speaks to what we're looking at here in terms of how faith transforms how we relate. That's what it says in 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So let me pause and time out right there for us, because that's the ultimate question for us. Am I a child of God or not? 
My kids even ask these questions to us. Daddy, how do I know if I'm really a follower of Jesus? Well, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you see the connection there? That one of the tests, if we have genuine faith, is not, did you pray this prayer perfectly? Did you do it four times? No, the, the test of faith is, has God changed you in such a way that there is now a transforming love for one another? Now, verse 11 of 1 John 3. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is not new. This is the, the message that God gives for us. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Okay, here we go again. How do I know? What is the fruit and evidence that I'm following Christ? By this we know that we've passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides. Remember that word means remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's a pretty sobering text for us that if we really have faith in Christ, not again did I pray a prayer, not did I go through externals, but if I really believe in Christ as my Lord, my master, my boss, one area that by God's grace I'm going to submit my life to his authority is in terms of how I relate to other Christians. One other verse in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to see this one as well. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Friends, if we believe, we love God. If we love God, the scripture says, we also will love our brothers and sisters, fellow adopted children, people who could never have that standing on their own, just like we could, but by God's grace have received his mercy. Friends, real faith results in real love for all believers. Now, two things I want you to not miss in this back in verse 15. Go back to Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Two things I want you to see about this love. Number one, it's a love towards the saints. Now, what do we make of this word love? You've heard me say before that English is not a very specific language. It's really confusing for us. I love chocolate, I love roller coasters, and I love Julia. There's kind of a problem, isn't there, that I can talk about chocolate and roller coaster with the same word I use to describe the, the covenantal love for my wife. English kind of leaves us hanging on this. is not very specific. The Greek is not like that. This, Ephesians was written in Greek originally. In the Greek language, there's multiple words for love. And the word that Paul intentionally uses on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe how our love is for one another is the word agape love. The highest possible form of love there. This is not a phileo brotherly love. This is an agape love. The purest, most covenantal, highest type of love that that language could come up with to describe. It's the very word for love that's used to describe the love of God for us, his people. It's an unconditional love, a purposeful love, a love that's regardless of anything else. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and your agape, unconditional, intentional, purposeful love for all of the saints. That's what we're being called to, that type of love. But notice this also for all the saints. This is a love that is agape love for all believers. Now there's no asterisk next to the word all. It says all believers except for those who have a doctrinal difference with you on an issue. There's no asterisk there that says you're supposed to show this agape unconditional love to all believers unless they have a differing view of how you should educate your kids. There's no asterisk here that says you should love all believers unless they, have a, unless they agree with you on the same worship style. There's no asterisk here regarding personality types. You should love all believers who have the same personality type as you. 
This is all, and all means all. We're to show an agape, unconditional love towards all believers, all those who are adopted sons and daughters of God. Now, I came across an idea while I was studying this week, and I'm going to paraphrase it to make it a little bit simpler, but I want to put it up on the screen for us. And it's simply this. To the extent that Christian love does not extend to all Christians, it is less than Christian. It is easy for us, friends, to show Christian love to people with the same personality type or the same spiritual gift mix we have or who do their families the same way we do our families or have the same interest in the same activities as we have. We go on and on on that. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to show agape love to everyone who is a follower of Christ. Regardless of their personality, regardless of how they structure their their kids, regardless of how they educate their kids, regardless of how they like to worship in their worship styles, regardless of all that, we're called by Jesus, if we're under his lordship, to have an agape love that extends to every Christian. To the extent that Christian love does not extend to all Christians, it is less than Christian. So go back to my opening question of what do we see characterizing believers, and there's so much division in the body of Christ among believers over things that are not gospel-centered. Things that are different of preferences, of personalities, of on and on we could go. And we choose to not extend Christian love sometimes to people who do not line up everything the way we do. But friends, real faith should result in real love for all believers. Now, what about non-Christians? Well, yeah, of course we're to love them. That's a sermon for a different day, okay? That's coming in Ephesians. Don't worry, we're going to get there to that eventually. But this is focusing on our love as brothers and sisters. It goes back to what Paul said to the people in Galatians, Galatians 6.10. We're to do good to all. All means all, but especially to the household of faith. This is what he's honing in on here. How do we treat others who are adopted sons and daughters of God along with us? Because that's inwardly what this text is driving us to, to not try harder. You've heard me say before, we can't manufacture this. We cannot manufacture an agape love for one another. It's a grace gift that the Holy Spirit gives us in our hearts. So please don't hear anything I'm saying as a white-knuckled determination. This is not, I'm going to grip on, hold on tight, and try harder to love each other. We're going to fall flat on our face if we do that. This is a call to strive for the grace of God, to ask God for genuine saving faith that will transform and revolutionize every part of our life, to ask Him for grace to change how we love one another. That's the inward part of what what should be happening in us. There's a second truth from this text I want to see as well, and it's this, that true faith should be celebrated and encouraged. What do we do when we see other believers here at Gateway and other churches in Montgomery other churches around the world, when we see people who have a faith, like Paul's describing here, faith in Christ as Lord, who have a genuine love for other believers, what do we do when we see that? Well, I want to contend here that we're supposed to celebrate and encourage that faith. Go back to verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason. Okay, let's just stop there. For what reason, Paul? What is Paul talking about? This is a whole flow of thought here. For everything that's been said in the first 14 verses. Everything that has to do with God being praised, God being blessed because of what he's done in our lives. For this reason, now what does Paul do? Verse 16. For this reason, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So, so perhaps we should read it this way to put the clauses together in the order that would make the most sense. For this reason, because of what God has done in you, adopting you, for this reason, I do not stop thanking God for you. For this reason, because of what God has done, I do not stop praying for you. Because of God's grace that has adopted you, I cannot help but praise God for what he's done in your life. Because of God's grace that has transformed you, I cannot help but pray for you. For these reasons now, I give thanks for you and I pray for you. What is Paul doing? He's celebrating God's grace here. He is rejoicing that he sees change happening in their lives. He sees faith. He sees 
changed, and he's celebrating that in his life. But friends, don't miss this. He's doing that vertically. This is, he's praising God here. He's not praising him. He's not like, you guys are so awesome, man. I'm glad you figured this out. That's not what he's doing. He's thanking God because he sees it's all God's work. That's everything in those first 14 verses. But don't miss this. He makes sure they know he's thanking God for it. He could easily have kept silence. He could have easily just daily thanked God privately for the Ephesians' faith. He could have easily, every day, prayed for them and never told them. And he could easily have done that with very spiritual terms. You know, if I tell them that, they might get really proud of what God has done in their midst. And if I tell them that, you know, it might go to their heads. No, there, there's so many ways we can even spiritualize not telling one another how we're praying, but Paul doesn't do that. This is all God we're focused, not man focused, but he makes sure to open his mouth to tell them that he's praising God. He's encouraging them by letting them know how he sees God's grace. And friends, think about the difference that would have made in their lives. Think back to our very first week in Ephesians five weeks ago. The believers in Ephesus were in a minority. They're in a town with a massive temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to a false goddess Artemis. You can't even go to the bank without going to the temple. Every coin you use to buy bread, you see a false goddess on it. Your neighbors are practicing witchcraft in the occult. There's a minority of believers who are surrounded with paganism literally everywhere. As they're sitting there in their little house churches, one day as a small group of believers in Ephesus with idolatry happening all around, and they get a letter from Paul. And they read it, and they went, wait, we got a letter from the apostle? He's in prison. He remembers us. What did Paul say to us? Is it going to be a correction? Is it going to be a rebuke? No, what do they get as they're trying and striving by God's grace to live for God in a hostile place? They hear these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love for one another. Therefore, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Therefore, I do not stop praying for you. Think of the difference that makes in the heart and soul of these young Ephesian believers when they hear Paul not praising them, but praising God for what God is doing in their midst. Well, friends, I don't want to stop with that because where my attention got arrested, and I got so convicted and captivated this week studying this text, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that the Ephesian believers had perfect faith? Do you think the Ephesian believers had perfect love for one another? So how can Paul say this to them? We know throughout Scripture that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8. We know these were many young believers who just come out of worshiping Artemis, who just come out of doing pagan worship all throughout the city, and God has rescued them from this. These are young believers with probably a ton of baggage in their life. We know growth and godliness was not over, overnight. God is sovereign. He can snap us and zap us and our sin go away and us be holy, but that's not what he does. He calls us to growth and godliness. Hence, we call sanctification, growth and godliness, progressive sanctification. It is a process in our lives. He's talking to many young believers in Ephesus. Are they going to have perfect faith? Of course not. Are they going to have perfect love? Of course not. Then why does Paul, when he writes to them, not say, I've heard of your decent faith in the Lord Jesus, but man, you've really got to work on that. It's not where it needs to be. It's not where mine is. He doesn't do that. Why does he say, hey, I've heard of your love, and it's mostly good, except for the time those women got into fight over there? No, he doesn't go into all that. Why does he just say, I've heard of your faith and love, and praise God for that? What is he doing? How can he look at them that way when it's imperfect? Two reasons. One, he's looking at them the way God looks at them. He's looking at them through the eyes of faith. He sees them covered in Christ's righteousness. Friends, when God looks at us, God is not looking at us, if we're a follower of Christ, angry because we've messed up again. All of his wrath against our sin has already been put on Christ on the cross. And so what God sees when he sees you and me, he sees Christ's righteousness. Remember, when Christ died, he not just forgave us, but he imputed, he gave to us his righteousness. And so Paul is looking on the people in Ephesus the way God looked upon them, and he sees them covered in Christ's righteousness. Do they have perfect faith? No, but Jesus did. 
Do they have perfect love for one another? No, but Jesus did. And because they're followers of Christ, because they're adopted, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies that we talked about a few weeks ago includes now they have Christ's righteousness. So God sees them as holy, as righteous, as pure of faith, and as pure of love as Jesus had. And Paul looks on them through those eyes. The other thing I want you to see is Paul's making a choice here to focus on what is growing that was not completely mature. He's focusing on what's growing. He's not focusing on what's lacking. He's focusing on what's growing. Throughout the Bible, we often talk about spiritual growth in terms of fruit. We talk about the fruit of a transformed life or the fruit of following Jesus. So we use that imagery. So think for me for a minute. If you're driving down to Orlando to Disney and you see the orange groves, if you see a tree with a tree with young fruit growing on it, and you see the green oranges that haven't turned orange yet, or perhaps you have a garden in your backyard and you grow tomatoes, and you look at when those little green tomatoes start to form before they turn red, when you look at the, the green tomato or the green orange, you go like, mm-mm-mm, such a shame. It's not green and orange yet. It is so inadequate, so inferior. Or do you look at that and go, wow, there's fruit starting to grow. There's life in the vine that's breathing life, and that's going to keep growing. Friends, if you take that imagery to the Christian church and to how we relate as believers, how often as we look at our, each other's lives do we see immature fruit? And instead of looking at that fruit going, praise God, there's fruit. Praise God, this person's connected to the vine of Christ, and he's changing them. So we can look at them and be like, such a shame they're not red or orange yet. Such a shame they're not mature. And we start focusing where they're not instead of where they are. What is Paul doing? Do the Ephesians have perfect faith? No. Do they have perfect love? No. But he's choosing to look at them covered in Christ's righteousness. And he's choosing to rejoice that there is life in the vine, that there is fruit growing, that was the fruit mature? No. But he's choosing to focus on the fact that there is fruit. And he's encouraging them to keep seeing that fruit grow, not to criticize them because it's not ripe yet. I know I don't put a lot of quotes on the screen, but I got arrested this weekend in my attention by one quote from a guy who's a pastor and also a seminary president. His name's Brian Chaplin. I want you to see what he said. He said, it takes no special skill to see what is wrong with people and to criticize them. Just stop there for a second, friends. That's what the world does. The world, people who are apart from Christ, with no hope in Christ, no transformed life, what is the default we do? We criticize. We criticize others to build ourselves up. That's what the world does. So it takes no special skill to see what is wrong with people and to criticize them. But to see people robed in a righteousness not their own. Just pause there. Again, this is what we're talking about, what Paul's doing here. He sees people covered in Christ's righteousness, seeing people with the spiritual eyes of faith to say that these people are growing in Christ. They have life in the vine. To see people robed in a righteousness not their own. We'll carry on. And to encourage them on this basis is to be more of what they should powerfully be, communicates the heart of Christ. So we can either criticize when we see immature fruit, or we can say, I see Christ's righteousness at work in you. I see God transforming you. There's fruit and it's growing, and I want to encourage you in that to seek God's grace, to see it keep growing. Which are we going to do? Are we going to criticize when we see immature fruit, or are we going to see people through the eyes of faith and encourage them to be who God already sees them to be? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Friends, real faith in Jesus results in love for all believers, and when we see that faith, we should celebrate it and encourage it. So how do we practically celebrate and encourage it in the lives of other believers? I'm going to give you four ways before we wrap up this morning that I want to encourage us in and how we can better celebrate and encourage this type of faith and this type of love in other believers. Number one, we worship together. We start there, friends. I don't want to... I want us to realize the significance of what happens on Sunday mornings. This is not just we do this because, well, we're supposed to go to church on Sundays. 
Friends, Sunday mornings are not about us. It's about God and his glory. It's about God's people of different backgrounds, different races, different walks of life coming together united to praise God for who he is, to celebrate his grace. Friends, if we're going to see people with the eyes of faith, to see God's grace in people's life, then we have to make it a priority to be celebrating God's grace. And that's exactly what Sunday mornings are all about. And so I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, friends, to make Sunday mornings a party because it's where we together collectively come together to celebrate the very grace of God that transforms us. Number two, we share life together. If we want to celebrate and encourage faith and love like Paul's doing here, we've got to be able to know what's in each other's lives. And we can't do that sitting across different sides of the sanctuary from one another. On a Sunday morning in an hour and a half here, we're not going to be able to really see how God's grace is transforming one another. So, friends, we make it a point. We make it a priority to share life together, to strive for community, make intentional choices to live together so that we can see those glimpses of, oh, my goodness, look at how God is changing. Look at God's grace in your life so we can celebrate it and encourage it in each other's lives. Now, I could spend a long time on this, but remember back in the fall, we did five weeks on biblical community. If you want to know everything I want to say about that right now, but don't have time to say, you can go back to our website to gatewaybaptist.com slash messages and find the five messages on biblical community. And that's everything I wish I could say, but don't have time to say this morning. At this point, simply, it's a priority. We make intentional choices to share life together. We can't celebrate and encourage each other in the faith if we aren't around one another. Number three, though, when we are around one another, we use our words to encourage. So we worship together, we share life together, and then in those moments, we intentionally use our words to encourage one another with the gospel. Friends, it's so easy to adopt the spirit of this age and this culture and criticize one another when we see unripe fruit. But we just steward our words well. Our words are a grace gift from God that are designed to glorify Him and to build up one another. And so, friends, can I ask you, can I ask me, when was the last time we intentionally sat down with another believer and said, I just want to encourage you at what I see God doing in your life? When was the last time someone sat down with you and said, I just am so thankful. I see God's grace at work in your life. I see God's grace at work in your marriage. I see God's grace at work in, the, in your parenting. I see God's grace in the way you're handling your job at work. I see God's grace in the way you're interacting with your friends at school. I just see God's grace everywhere in your life. When was the last time someone sat down with us and encouraged us at God's grace? Friends, we need to intentionally use our words to encourage one another by doing what Paul did here, saying, hey, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Number four, we pray for one another. There's nothing that shows true love more than praying for one another. It's awfully hard to maintain a critical spirit for someone you're praying for. I guess unless you go one of those imprecatory prayers from the Psalms. But that's a whole different story for a different day on that. But like, if we really are praying for God's grace in someone's life and we're celebrating like Paul's doing here what God has done in their life, it's awfully hard to maintain a critical spirit for unripe fruit. If we see God's grace and we start praying and thanking God for what he's doing. So friends, intentionally we need to be worshiping together, sharing life together, stewarding our words well to encourage another and praying for one another. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Friends, real faith in Jesus results in love for all believers, and such faith should be celebrated and encouraged. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment for this week. Okay, you ready for homework for the week? Youth, you've got it easy this week because you're going to youth camp, so I've given you a good week for this one. Would you this week be intentional and find one other believer, just one, it's not going to take long, one other believer, and spend some time with another brother or sister in Christ. And when you're with them, affirm in them something you see of God's grace. Friends, there are people all across this room who are discouraged, who are down. The enemy is whispering lies to them. They feel isolated. They feel alone. And yet God is working. They see the immature fruit in their life, and they're not where they need to be because we all have a gap between where we are and where we know Christ wants us to be. 
And, there's, and we all need encouragement. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. So would you this week make it a priority to find a brother or sister and sit down and say, hey, I just want to encourage you. I see God's grace at work in your life and dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. So again, youth, you've got it easy. You've got the next five days together in the car, at the beach, playing all the games and the worship sessions. You've got it easy this week to find time to affirm in each other's life some way you see God's grace. But for the rest of us, friends, what would happen if this week God encouraged every single one of us, reminding us of our identity in Christ, if a brother or sister would come to us and say, I just want to encourage you in the fruit I see in your life as God's changing you. And if we would do that with someone else. And let's see what God does with that. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful that in your kindness to us, you do not leave us where we are. God, that you love us so much, you transform us. And Lord, we're thankful this day for your grace gift of faith. God, that you have poured into our heart and you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe the gospel. Lord, we thank you for that. God, we thank you as well that you're still sanctifying us. You're still growing us. And Lord, for each of these precious brothers and sisters, God, today, would you remind them of who they are in Christ? Would you remind them today that they belong to you? Would you remind them today that you are rejoicing over them with singing, that you, are, that you love them, they're loved by you, and you're holding them? Would you remind each of us this day of who we are in Christ? God, I pray as well, though, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see not just your glory and how you're working in us, but God, would you give us eyes to see this week how you're working in other people's lives? And God, that we would be your ministers of reconciliation. We'd be your mouthpiece, God to be used by you to encourage a brother or sister to see your grace at work in their lives. Lord, I thank you that you've not made us to walk this journey of faith alone. You've given us the grace gift of community, the grace gift of one another. And God, I pray we steward that well this week. And you build up this body of Christ here at Gateway, even as we encourage each other with your grace, pointing one another to you and your kindness to us so that you get the praise and we get the joy. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?